Welcome, everybody, to Books with Cooks, a podcast for bookies and foodies. Hi, I'm Jess. And I'm Alex. And we're two cousins who are also best friends who love to read. Yeah. And I love to cook. And I cook to survive. We'll be reviewing, analyzing, sometimes overanalyzing, and discussing the books we're currently reading, as well as new and old recipes from our kitchen to yours. By the way, we're real people with real families. So you may hear cats, dogs, birds, babies, and husbands. So enjoy that bonus material. Now let's get booking and have a tasty chat. started, we want to include some trigger warnings. This book and the following discussion will include topics of racism, depression, suicide, death, gun violence, sexual content, and murder. So please be aware of that before you proceed. Also, just be aware that there will be cursing and spoilers. So if that's something you're sensitive to, or if you haven't read the book yet, you may want to skip this episode and come back to it in the future. Hey, listeners, stick around after this episode for some bonus content. Hello, welcome back to Books with Cooks. We're snacking. Alex, what do you got for your snacks today? All right. So today I do have some clementines and then I have Snyder's honey mustard and onion pretzel pieces, which are addicting yeah. as hell. Yeah, they're really good. Oh, oh. You're a Schneider. You're a Schneider. A Schneider. A Schneider. <laughs> Is it Snyder or Schneider? I don't know. Doesn't matter. I don't know, but I love that your <laughs> snacks, your snacks are Schneiders. Snacks are Schneiders. Awesome. Snack uh, and Schneiders. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm happy to report that I don't have a sugar-free Red Bull today. Ooh, Ooh wow. Uh, I know. I'm switching it up. I have a chai tea, um, which is organic. I get the uh, chai tea from uh, Amazon. It's pretty delish. I will put the link in our bio. And uh, I am having it with some vanilla syrup. Uh, Tarani vanilla syrup and some it's actually vanilla bean pretty delish mm. and um some frothed oat milk I like uh, the silk oat milk creamer it's called the oatmeal cookie one and it's pretty yummy so I, I put that in there okay uh, and then I have some kettle chips nice so. very nice yeah. all right snacking snacky snack snacking <laughs> so first the snacks and what do we want to unpack Any anything we talk about today Anything we want to chat about? Um, I figure we could go through our rating criteria since we are rating books on on these episodes. Then, you know, people can understand why we rate these books the way that we do. Okay. All right. You want to go first? Sure. All right. All right. S- sorry if you can hear Renly drinking in the background. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I do rate on a zero to five star criteria. So I'll start with the top for a five- these books, in my opinion, are flawless or at least nearly flawless. Uh, there might be some minor issues, but I don't feel that they detract from the reading experience. I generally loved it and I would probably reread it. I would most likely recommend it. Uh, a four book, a four star book has solid plot, solid characters, good writing, some minor flaws that I think do detract from the reading experience. So for example, maybe there's a lull in the story or it should have been 
or it could have been a little bit shorter. Maybe it was a little predictable or I felt frustrated with something in the book, but overall I really liked it and I might reread it and I might recommend it. A three-star book, I think, has a good plot and good characters, but just okay writing. I think that there's some writing issues that do detract from the reading experience. For example, the writing style, there might be tonal issues or editing issues, or maybe just doesn't feel overall original and could be predictable. Overall, I like a three-star book. I enjoyed reading it, and I might reread it. It would depend on the plot and the characters for me for this one, and I might recommend it. just depends on the book. A two-star book would have a good to mediocre plot, probably flat characters and mediocre or poor writing. I most likely did not enjoy reading this book and I would not reread it. I most likely would not recommend it. Uh, One star I would think has poor plot, flat characters, poor writing. Overall, I hated the book and I would not reread it. And then a zero star for me just means that I didn't finish it either because I hated it or I just felt no desire to keep reading it. Maybe it just wasn't the book for me. So it might be an okay book. It's just not the book for me. So there you have it. How about how about you, Jess? Uh, Well, a five star for me is a book that I absolutely love, uh, even if it's imperfect. If it's something that's like a fun joy ride, something that I would be recommending to everyone and their mobile, uh, something that I would just... <laughs> absolutely love like fourth wing for example that i have a book hanging over and i can't seem to read something that is curing it that's a five star for me (laughs) Uh, a four and a half is something that i would reread maybe some minor flaws same thing with a four you know i would reread it but um, maybe there's some plot inconsistencies or other issues or you know personal things uh, for me that i just didn't like about the content or the writing uh three and a half or lower i'm just going to group that all together and tell you that I wouldn't reread any of those. Um, it depends on if it's a one, I hate it, you know, uh, or like a DNF. I just didn't finish it. I couldn't finish it. Uh, but it really just depends on my level of distaste for the book or the inconsistencies or major flaws uh, for where I would group it anywhere from a three and a half and lower. So that's my rating for you. <laughs> Damn, okay. Yeah. I'm a little ruthless when three and a half to, to one go down. So it depends. Like I gave um, Starts With Us, as you know, a one and a half and I feel like I was a little generous maybe because I felt yeah. bad um <laughs> but yeah I, I didn't feel bad with Lucy's scorebook I had said that I gave that I think zero stars or a one I don't even remember mm-hmm. uh, but I didn't finish that book so not my favorite yeah. so that just yeah. gives you a glimpse of of where my ratings come from yeah and just so you guys can understand a little bit you know why we we rate the books the way that we do all right so let's yeah let's get into it Okay, it's time for the word of the day. Remember that we encourage our listeners to use these words in your daily conversations and with us on our socials. Stay tuned at the end of this episode when we will give out our sassy spatula award to whoever correctly uses the word in conversation during the previous episode. Each word of the day will come from the Word of Day Vocabulary Workbook by Francine Puckley or Franny the Pucks. Follow the link in bio to get a copy for yourself. Without further ado, today's word of the day is discombobulate, spelled D-I-S-C-O-M-B-O-B-U-L-A-T-E, pronounced discombobulate. It is a verb that is defined as to confuse or place in an awkward predicament, utterly disconcerted. For example, the frenzied pace of eight hours on the trading floor has left me utterly discombobulated. 
Alex, let's come up with some other examples on the fly. Can you think of one or two? Okay, sure. Uh, the NPC chapter of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow had me totally discombobulated. Oh, that's really good. And that's also very true. Yeah. Uh, uh, the ending, not to give anything away, but the ending of Divine Rivals had me discombobulated. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm, little well, sneak preview for you guys there. Yeah. To go along with that, the ending of Fourth Wing, I think, had the whole world discombobulated. Not Doug, apparently. <laughs> Not Doug, true. The whole world Doug. minus Doug. <laughs> How about uh, Sam's feelings for Sadie in this book had him a little discombobulated? Hmm. Okay. Sadie's relationship with Dove had me discombobulated. Dove not being punched in the face the entire novel had me discombobulated. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> All right. So here's some trivia about the word discombobulated from Grammarist.com. When it first appeared in the U.S. in the early 1800s, discombobulate was just a playful, rootless coinage conveying a sense of confusion. It was probably inspired by similar words like discomfort and discompose. But the bobulate part has no etymological origin whatsoever. So that's pretty interesting. You're a coinage. Your mom's a coinage. Your mom's a you're, grammarist. You're a bobulate. <laughs> you want to get bobulated? <laughs> I can't. Because as you know, we are all about booking and cooking. So let's get into our ingredient of the week. This week's ingredient is... Pizza dough, inspired by the pizzeria that Sam's grandparents owned. We'll make something using that ingredient to discuss in our potty episode, which will air on Thursday. Send us recipe suggestions on our socials and we may feature them in the future. Okay, so before we get started, let's tell you why we chose this book. It has great reviews and is critically acclaimed. It also has an interesting summary and the title really drew us in. Plus, can we look at that cover? Right. Yeah. I thought it was. Oh, um. so, yeah, I actually thought it was sci fi. And I was like, <laughs> let's throw this sci fi book in there. A nice change of pace. Yeah, I was wrong. It, it's not sci fi. Uh, so <laughs> not sure where I got that from. Uh, maybe because I thought it was like a video game. Maybe it would be techie. I, I had my actual thoughts that I would like to tell you later when I rewrite the novel. But I'll zip lock that for now. But yeah, <laughs> okay. not sci fi. It does have a nice cover, though. It does. <laughs> Although, can we just say that I thought that it was an uh, it was a snowy mountain, and I was incorrect. Apparently. Yeah, it's it's a wave. <laughs> I was like, this mountain has nothing to do with it. There is no snow in this novel. <laughs> but apparently, Alex is correct. It is an ocean, so it's probably um, you know Ichigo, the video games, a little backdrop or something. Yeah. All right. So before we dive into our discussion, here's a plot synopsis so everyone knows what this book is about. Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow follows the story of Sam Major and Sadie Green. The two met as children when Sam was in the hospital due to a horrific car accident that resulted in the death of his mother. Sadie is also at the hospital visiting her older sister who is being treated for cancer. Sam and Sadie bond over a mutual love of video games and develop a close friendship. Years later, the two have gone their separate ways but are reunited in Boston and ultimately decide to collaborate on the creation of a video game, Ichigo, which goes on to become a worldwide sensation and brings the pair fame, success, and riches. 
The novel spans 30 years following Sam and Sadie from the time they meet through their successes and hardships. It explores themes of self-identity, friendship, tragedy, and resilience. Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is written by Gabrielle Zevin. Like Sam in the book, Gabrielle has a mixed heritage. Her mother is a Korean immigrant and her father is a mix of Jewish, Russian, Polish, and Lithuanian ancestry. They also both worked for the multinational technology company, IBM. Gabrielle lived in Manhattan for about a decade before relocating to Los Angeles. She received a degree in American literature from Harvard University. And while at Harvard, she also met her partner, who later went on to direct the film adaptation of Zevin's novel, Conversations with Other Women. Gabrielle Zevin is now a New York Times bestselling author of 10 novels. Wow. She also wrote the screenplays for the film adaptations of her novels, Conversations with Other Women, and The Storied Life of A.J. Fickrey. She's also currently working on the screenplay currently for Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. The novel recently sold the rights for a feature film in a 25-bitter auction. All right, so let's get into our book discussion on Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. First up, what do we think of the title? Why do you think Gabrielle Zevin chose the title and what are your thoughts on it? I mean, my thoughts on it is that it, it depicts the novel because it takes a while, a while and a while uh, to repeat and repeat and repeat and do the same thing over and over, <laughs> kind of. Uh, but that's definitely not why she chose it. I think tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow was a reference to something. Yeah. Um, also, it it definitely because it's about two friends from childhood and you know their relationship uh throughout decades so really it is going tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow plus when sadie meets sam for the first time when they're children uh she does come to visit him the day you know t tomorrow tomorrow and tomorrow so it does have like a i feel like a, a full maybe like a couple of meanings uh buried within it if that makes sense yeah what do you think so when I first saw the title, I thought, which actually makes sense why you would think that this is like a sci-fi book. I think this kind of sounds like a sci-fi uh, title. It kind of sounds like a time travel title. Um, but then in the book, they do explain that it is from uh, Macbeth's speech uh, within the book of Macbeth. I think actually yes, Macbeth right. is yeah. the one who says it. Yeah. And I did like that they, that she included it. Um, and she does explain, I think during the NPC chapter that Mark's Macbeth was his favorite Shakespearean play. And this was his favorite quote, I believe from the book. And I thought that was really nice. I think also the, the quote from Macbeth is um, supposed to be yeah. about like endings and things like that about, I, I don't know, like things coming to an end or, or not coming to an end. So I thought it was appropriate for the scene in which it was used. And I thought it was also appropriate for the novel with this idea of friendships ending and starting and ending and starting and just different relationships throughout a lifespan that begins and end. Um, so I actually, after reading it, I really liked the title and I think that she chose it because it did kind of fit the, the story. Yeah, you reminded me, actually, um, I had made myself a note here on page 334 for anyone who has the physical book, but it, it is, it's from a Macbeth um, Shakespeare soliloquy, uh, the show must go on, and something that is included in the Easter egg of Sadie's game later on, 
Yeah. Uh, so it was interesting that he does say that tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow in Shakespeare. So um, I forgot about that. But yeah, that does make a lot of sense because uh, Marx is an actor when they mm-hmm. first meet him in the beginning yeah. of the story. And he does do um, Macbeth uh, characters. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. I like yeah. the title. Yeah. I do think yeah. it's annoying to say, but I do. I do like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Zev- Zevin did us no favors with the uh, with the title speaking it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what do you think of the cover art? Does it fit with the content of the book? <laughs> we had some uh, contrasting yeah. thoughts of the, the title. Yeah. I mean, um, of the cover. I mean, I was a little confused by the the cover art. After reading it, it makes a little bit more sense. Uh, you know, you pointed out to me that in the Ichigo game, he's like taken out by a tsunami and that's how he gets taken away from his home. So mm-hmm. that that does make sense after reading it. However, I didn't really think that I even after reading it, I didn't quite make the connection. I was like, I don't really know why there's a giant wave unless it's just supposed to be symbolic for like waves of change, you know, throughout life. Yeah. Um, I liked that the the letters were in rainbow colors to reference the topics of um, gay gay marriage or same sex marriage within the novel. Uh, but overall, I I don't know how I feel about the cover. I don't know if it really fits the content of the book and just how uh, it, it just honestly it seems like a more fun cover. It's like a cool cover for a book that's really not very fun. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Uh, I think, um, you know, the more I look at it, the more I realize that it is a beach. You know, at first I thought the bottom of it was the uh, snowy mountain and I was like, this makes no sense. Um, But now that I see it's a beach, it does relate to Ichigo, but it also relates to their relationship because through the years there are waves crashing into that relationship. Um, There are things that, you know, add damage to uh, their relationship as well as the miscommunication trope that's in this novel. Um, you know, they don't communicate and it, it really does uh, diminish their relationship, um, just like a, a a wave would diminish, you know, some of the ocean going in and out. So I think it does correlate. I think it's a fun uh, cover. It's pretty to look at for sure. So Yeah. Yeah, I like I, I like the cover. I just don't know if it fits really. The font, the font reminds me of a video game. So there you go. Yeah, <laughs> the whole thing is reminiscent of an old school video game mm. right like one of those like uh uh what are they called pixelated <laughs> old yeah. video games that yeah. you would imagine this to have been so yeah okay all right so this novel explores themes of sexism in the work field and also just in general in the field of video game development in what ways do we see Sadie struggling with this throughout the novel? And do we see any other characters struggling with this as well? Yeah, so we definitely see a lot of sexism in this book. A lot of sexism in the industry of creating video games. Uh, in the tech world, it seems back in, uh, I think this was started in the 70s, 80s, when they were making and developing games. Um, and there was a lot of animosity towards females. Uh, there weren't a lot of females in the industry. So uh, even when she was in a class, Sadie, when she started out, uh, she was only in the classroom with another female student. She was one of only two. And she even had animosity from the other female student. And it kind of went to show that she was kind of just trying to um, maybe put Sadie down to make the men like her more or something. So this way she can get ahead. 
I'm not really sure, but uh, I do. There was a show that um, me and Doug watched on uh, Apple TV that had, um, I think it's called Mythic Quest. And it's more modern time. And in the developing world, there are only two females in the office. So I'm not sure if that's changed. That's not my my area of expertise. So I'm not really 100%. So please correct me if I'm wrong. But um, I did see her struggling a lot, even sometimes when they would announce the game, uh, even though Sadie did most of the work on Ichigo, uh, the reporters and everything automatically assumed that Sam being, you know, male um, created the game and did all the work and she did not. So, or when, for example, the other game that they made a second game, um, when it didn't do as well as Ichigo did, they assumed Sadie made that one because it wasn't so good. So there was definitely a lot of sexism that I noticed in that. And not even just, she was also struggling with, um, you know, her relationship um, to Dov. You know, Dov was treating her in a sexist manner as well, which we'll get into a little bit later. So I think there's heavy sexism in this uh, novel for sure. Um, and even sexism or maybe even like a homophobia, which we'll also discuss later too, which ties in. So, yeah, I definitely think that there was a lot of sexism with Sadie. Definitely all the points that you made, I agree with how when something was successful, they were very quick to minimize her involvement. And when something was considered a failure, they were very quick to overemphasize her involvement. Um, when she was in school, she was in, I, I think at the time, I think this is in like the eighties and nineties. And at the time there just weren't as many women at MIT where she was studying. There weren't as many women in STEM fields and they had to work a lot harder to be seen as serious in their fields. And I think that that was made clear in this book. I kind of liked reading that. I thought it was interesting and true to real life. And I think when we see just in general, when Sam first meets Sadie, he's kind of like, oh, you know, you like video games. I think that was a little bit of like, oh, but you're a girl. Um, they, they didn't really explore that too much. He kind of accepted it. But I think initially he was kind of like, oh, you know, do you even play? <laughs> um, okay. I also saw sexism with Sam's mom when she was talking about or when Sam was recounting her experiences trying to become an actress when she, you know, Sam was young and she was out there trying to make a living and she's going to audition for something that's kind of similar to uh, that show with the suitcases that they have to open. Doesn't matter. It's like a game show. And oh, he, deal or no deal. Deal or no deal. Right. Yeah. I couldn't think of the name. Um, you know, she goes in and the producer has her turning around and, you know, critiquing her body and her, you know, her getting the job was based solely on her looks. It had nothing to do with her her ability to act or, or anything other than how she looks. And I think that that was pretty prevalent in the novel as well. I think even, yeah. you know, Sam, Sam talks about Sadie always being so beautiful and how things were always so easy for her. And that it kind of brings out this idea that if a woman is pretty, she doesn't need to work at anything because she's just pretty and can get whatever she wants. And obviously we know that that's not true. And it's very easy for men to once again, minimize a woman's work, eth uh, work ethic and, you know, achievements because of the way that she looks. Well, in what ways do you see Sam and Marks struggling with racism throughout the novel? Because that's another prominent yeah. theme in this, uh, in this novel. Do you, do we see any other characters experiencing racism? Um, well, we definitely see Sam and Mark struggling with racism and I felt it was 
it was really clear when they were making Ichigo that a lot of people in the book were saying that, oh, the, the character of Ichigo looks so much like Sam and it must be based on him. When in reality, Sam was from Korean and Jewish background and the character in Ichigo was Japanese. So it kind of makes you think that there's this stereotype that people from one type of culture are all the same and they all look the same just because of some similar characteristics that they may have. So I thought that that was uh, touching on that idea in the novel uh, with Marx. He at one point is talking about how, you know, he really wants to become an actor. He really wants to pursue this as his career. And for some reason, he can never be cast in that leading role. He always ends up playing, you know, the arrogant side character, the handsome side character. And he doesn't understand why. And he asks one of his friends at one point and his friend says, well, and he kind of just like points to his face and he's like, what, because of my face? And he's like, because you're Asian. And I felt, I felt so bad for Marx at that point too, because I think that once again is very true to real life. You know, people do tend to look at all different cultures from the same area as just being one thing where Sam is concerned. And then they, you know, they have less opportunities for success in mainstream media and in, you know, the arts, because it's a very, you know, white centric field. And I I thought that it was really interesting to read about. I don't know if I saw it, it, it may have touched on other areas with some other characters as well, but those are the ones that stick out the most to me. And then you see it as well with Sam's mom. Sam's mom is trying to be an actress, oh, but yes. she gets cast in like, you know, uh, game shows and small roles, things that, you know, she should probably have been at least tried for other roles you know or yes. at least considered for for bigger roles uh yeah. tv shows or whatever i know um so, something you said earlier when you brought up sam's mom reminded me of when sam was younger and he was walking on the streets with his mom and there's a an asian woman who commits suicide literally right in front of them was that what you were thinking of i wasn't thinking of that but that's definitely yeah another issue as yeah well during that scene, she explains that she has the same name, uh, Anna Lee. And they say, you know, oh, there's a lot of us, you know, Asian women in New York at that time that have that name. And it's because they needed to, once again, kind of whitewash their names so that they can have more opportunities in theater, um, which is what they were both right. pursuing at the time. And that kind of goes back to the same issue that Marx was having, where there's just not as many opportunities and you kind of have to change things about yourself to make it more mainstream, you know, for for audiences. That was a really hard scene to read about. That was really sad, but I did think it was yeah. impactful. And she did talk about, you know, her experiences with racism in the industry. Yeah, that was a very important role um, going with uh, Sam's mom to, to correlate with her own life about what yeah. she was going through. And also uh, Sam's grandparents own a pizzeria. Oh, yeah. And I think a comment was made about how how do they own a pizzeria or they had to change their names to something ridiculous. It was like Bong or something. Yeah. They couldn't have their actual names uh, in the title of the pizzeria, the restaurant, um, because then people might get the wrong idea. Oh, Asian names making pizza or something like that. So yeah. I, I seen that as well. And um, that was another message, too. That's like, you know, it's very stereotypical to consider. Uh, you know, what kind of restaurants and who owns them and things like that. So 
Yeah, that was, yeah, that was definitely something also there. Yeah. All right. So what did you think about the relationship between Sadie and Dove? I know you have uh, opinions on this. Um, Oh, yeah. And as the relationship evolved, what changes did you see unfolding in their dynamic? And then to go along with that, Dead Sea was a video game that was made by Dove, which was Sadie's comfort game. Why do you think she continued to see that as a comfort after her relationship with Dove took a turn? I can't stand Dove. You know, he's (laughs) awful. Uh, He's very sexist, first of all. Secondly, you know, he's her teacher and then she sleeps with him basically to excel in the class. Um, And that's not on her necessarily. You know, it's just it it just didn't sit right with me all of that. Um, But it's the way that he treated her the second time around. First of all, the first first time around he had a wife and a child um you know and he was uh, committing adultery with his student which is just disturbing on its own but then when they break up and get back together um he's handcuffing her to the bed leaving her there for hours he's handcuffing her to the bed again naked might i add um you know and just leaving her in the room while he develops games he handcuffs her to the bed when she's leaving him so that he she can't leave just a lot of disturbing things and uh it was hard to read that for me i was just like what is this why is he doing this and why is she allowing this to happen i don't know if maybe it was some kind of power dynamic for him i assume because he seems like a very arrogant uh power driven guy uh and for her maybe she was just trying to get ahead trying not to make waves there's another tie into the the artwork uh Maybe she was trying not to make waves for her own career. I don't know, but she's just silently took it all. And I just couldn't understand that for me. That was hard for me to, to see as a woman. Uh, and as far as Dead Sea being her comfort game, I know she did like the game before they started dating. And that's what attracted her to him that, you know, he was successful and all these things. Uh, but afterwards, I mean, this guy handcuffed you to a bed. He mistreated you in so many ways. He said he was going to leave his wife. He never did. You know, he doesn't seem like the best guy. Uh, And after all of this time, you know, of not seeing him anymore and having been handcuffed to the bed when you were trying to leave the relationship. I mean, so disturbing. uh, You're still playing his game as a comfort game. I just thought that that was odd. Um, So, you know, I don't know. How do you feel about that? Just it was odd to Mm -hmm. me that that would still be her comfort game, because if it was me, you know, and I dated somebody and let's say they had a video game that they made or something and then. They were handcuffing me to beds and naked and leaving me there for hours and all these crazy things, um, you know, this horrible, abusive, technically, uh, you know, relationship. I would want nothing to do with that person's anything. I, mm-hmm. I would throw out their pictures, let alone their game. I would never keep something and consider it my, quote, comfort. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. just interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think for Sadie, the game was a comfort. It was her favorite game and it was a comfort game for her long before she met Dove. And she was able to kind of separate the two in her brain to separate the art from the artist, Um, which, you know, I I might not be able to do that, but there's plenty of people out there who can. And I think that's just the type of person that Sadie was, that she wasn't going to stop playing her favorite game or stop allowing a comfort of hers to be taken away by somebody that she no longer, you know, likes that she, she feels some kind of way towards because it also kind of lets him win in a scenario like that as well. You know, so if this is something that was important to you and that you enjoy, and that's a comfort for you, don't let it 
be diminished because of how he treated you, even though he's the one who created the game. Mm. So I do think that Sadie's just that kind of person that can compartmentalize her, her emotions and separate out her feelings from, you know, different areas of her life. But again, I mean, I don't know if I would do that. I, I probably would feel the same as you. I don't think I could separate those two, but Sadie is a different kind of person. <laughs> and I think that she's just that type. Yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, that goes back to the miscommunication trope again. You know, there's a lot of miscommunication in this novel, like we saw with Happy Place. Yeah. And that, you know, brings me back to Sadie and Dove's actual relationship, where I don't think she hated him as much as maybe the readers might dislike him or, or hate him, because she did really, I think, care for him at one point. He, he was with his wife the entire time that they were in a relationship. So he never actually left his wife until well after they broke up for the, sef- the second time and she moved to Los Angeles. Um, you know, the entire time that they were in a relationship together, I believe they, you know, he was with his wife or the, at least it was complicated with his wife. Um, he did constantly say, you know, oh, I'm going to leave her. I think this very, very much mirrors real life. I think this happens with a lot of women out there who you know, they, they fall for somebody that is in a relationship and they think that this person's going to change for them or that they're going to leave their wife for them. And, you know, 95% of the time it never happens, but every single day, there's still somebody out there that's, that's believing somebody when they say that. So I, I thought that that was realistic for her to be in a situation like that. I definitely think Dove enjoyed using his power over Sadie and just over, I think, people in general and women in general. I, I, I do think it's with women, but I, I think it was just people in general, because I think even as we saw him as a teacher, he kind of got some type of enjoyment out of just trashing all of his students' games. Nobody was good enough. The only one who did kind of present something that he saw some uh, inspiration in or some type of promise in was Sadie and then as soon as he saw that it was like the shiny new thing and he needed to have it as his own and so Mm -hmm. he 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 did my issue with their relationship because you know as it evolved the the second time around you know she does it, it doesn't appear that this was present in their relationship the first time they're together but then when they get back together it seems like he wanted to explore some kinks which is fine we're not going to kink shame however it doesn't seem as though he ever requested consent from Sadie to participate in these things. He just started doing it. And Sadie never communicated to him whether she wanted to or not. So even though she does disclose to Marx later on that you know she did enjoy some of it, there was also something she didn't enjoy and she never communicated that to Dove. He does handcuff her to the bed um, and then goes and plays video games. Again, this was, I think, part of that that sexual kink for them. But once again, I think it was just one-sided. I do think Sadie needed to speak up more. We don't really know what would have happened if she had told him that she didn't want to. Maybe he wouldn't have listened and he would have done it anyway, or maybe he would have respected her wishes. We don't really find out because it's never made clear in the book. He was definitely emotionally abusive. And I think this is where the power comes in because even after she's no longer a student and she's making her own games and her game is becoming wildly successful, he still makes it a point to make her feel naive and young and not as intelligent and not as successful as him or just not as good as he is. So I thought that their relationship was definitely toxic. It was definitely harmful. 
but I think that it, there was a lot of gray area in this relationship. I, I think it was a very realistic relationship. Honestly, I, when, not to bring this back to Colleen Hoover, but when you look at oh, a, a, an abusive relationship, this is more realistic where there's a lot of gray area where somebody can be abusive, but not abusive at other times. And there's just a lot of dynamics involved. It just, this just felt more real than it did in the previous novel. If you're going to explore this kind of topic, to me, there were a lot of things here that were abusive and there were some things that weren't abusive. And then, you know, it just comes down to where, where was Sadie at this whole time? And we never really find out from her point of view what she was feeling, except, you know, later in the book, she then says, oh, well, I didn't really want this. I didn't want to be in a relationship with him, but she never communicated and she never made a move to leave. And we don't really understand the reasons why. Except that yeah, I will say Sadie just has a lack of action throughout the novel. She kind of just lets things happen to her. And we do have a question about this later on. So I'll kind of ziplock that for our discussion later on. But I do think that this is just another area of her life where she just allowed things to happen without trying to let them happen or trying to stop them from happening. And it's just been a consistency throughout her life. To piggyback off two things you said, um, one, uh, when he, uh, basically when she's his student, with Dov's student in the class in MIT, uh, he says that he sees something in her and, you know, whatever. But later there's actually a quote where he's basically telling her that, oh, I seen something in you because I was really just trying to sleep with you. Yeah. So that was interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not supportive. But the the interesting, most interesting thing that I just realized, um, too, is that, you know, that kinky handcuffing and all that stuff didn't actually take place until they got back together the second yeah. time. And that was after she called him reached out to him and said we need to use something from your game as a foundation mm-hmm. for our game and yeah. that was for the you know like the the storm whatever mm-hmm. um because they had to have like a, a stormy background and he had great graphics or whatever it was so i think he got a power trip from that so it was interesting that the kinky stuff didn't start until after he had something over her like that um but it was hard to watch because you know she would uh, pick up the phone while she was handcuffed naked to a bed and he was in the other room playing or wherever he was doing whatever he was doing. And she would call Sam or somebody and she would just have a regular conversation. Like nothing was happening. I, mm-hmm. I was, I thought she was going to call him and say like, you know, help. <laughs> and mm-hmm. she never asked for help. It was just, oh, oh this is it. This is what it is. As if yeah. maybe she was afraid to speak up or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting to, to, uh, to see unfold for sure. Yeah. I don't think that he wanted to engage in the kinks for that reason. I think Mm. he, I think it's something that he wanted to explore and he knew that Sadie would allow him to explore it with him. I think he was pretty quick to pick up on the fact that she is just one of those people that will accept how she's treated and doesn't really make a move to change that one way or another. And he was very quick to exploit that from her. So I I don't think he was necessarily like, oh, well, I'm going to give you my game and you're going to do this shit with me. (laughs) I think it was more just like, you're you're kind of somebody that I can take advantage of and I'm going to take advantage of it because I want to do these things and what you want doesn't really matter. Right. It's just interesting because he didn't do it the first time around. He did it the second time around. So that's why I thought maybe. Well, I mean, that's kind of normal in relationships as (laughs) as they evolve and people try new things and. Um, yeah, like he was just trying to see what he can get away with every time she came back to him. Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. We don't like you, Dove. <laughs> Use evil, man. He's the villain in the video game of this book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Sadie's a little bit of a villain yeah. at times. <laughs> I think they're not in that, not in in that situation. Way, yeah. <laughs> No, not in that situation. Absolutely not. But yeah. While Sadie's uh, speaking of the video games uh, that she presented in MIT when she was a student, uh, while Sadie's Emily Dickinson game that you created is being critiqued for class, why do you think her female peer is so disparaging of her work? And why do you think Sadie struggles to establish friendships with her female classmate? Yeah. So I think that this goes back to what you were saying earlier, that maybe because there's not a lot of women in the field, they feel like they have to drag other women down because it makes them feel like they're part of the, you know, the men's group. And that that's really what I think it comes down to. I think that a people are going to be more critical of your work as a woman in general. And I think other women are going to be even more critical. I think in addition to that, this was the one game that seemed to get some good, good feedback from the teacher who was dove at the time, but it was the only game that got some, you know, he said, you know, it's not a great game, but it's not bad either. And it was the only one that he said wasn't bad. And I think that she was probably right. jealous. And I think that there was some of that as well, when it came to establishing friendships, that there's too much competitiveness in the field and that they were essentially mm-hmm. each other's competitors as the two female in the class. They, I think she felt like she needed to outdo Sadie and she didn't, she never did. So I think that's where that came from. Right. And it's so sad that females, uh, you know, yeah. being the minority in that classroom at that time during that period uh, would, would not be supportive of each other, you know? Yeah. Um, but I didn't like uh, the female peer at all. I, I don't remember her name, but uh she was very critical of her work, Sadie, uh, but she also was quick to accuse her of sleeping with the teacher. You know, mm-hmm. she was quick to be like, oh, well, you're sleeping with him. So your little relationship is why you're excelling, which before she was even sleeping with her teacher, she was still excelling. Uh, yeah. She made a game that maybe, you know, uh, the other female in the class found disturbing and maybe it was a little, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it definitely stood out. And um, it was definitely not because she was sleeping with the teachers because she was, you know, a creative game maker. Uh, So I do think there was definitely some animosity and jealousy there, like you said as well. So and it was sad because at that time, instead of being supportive, uh, you know, she kind of was jumping on the bad wagon of, oh, let me just bash this female. So this way the males will take more seriously, perhaps. And no one ever did. because Nothing really amounted. We never really heard anything from her. Yeah. um, Again. So, yeah. It just goes to show, you know, you should be supportive instead of trying to bring another female down unless they truly deserve it. Absolutely. No, no women should support <laughs> other women. We shouldn't be dragging each other down for, you know, no good reason. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, sadly, this is something that still happens today. I think uh, it's not fully gone. It's much better than it certainly was at that time. But I think that this is something that still happens. Oh, Definitely. Yeah. yeah, sexism is definitely still alive and functioning in this world today, for yeah. sure. I'd love to say that we've made a lot of progression. We have, um, but uh, you can't say it's obsolete. No, it definitely isn't. All right, so during the novel, in what ways does Sadie appear to struggle with depression or her mental health in general? And is this topic explored in other areas of the novel? 
Yeah. Uh, well, particularly at the end, you know, you Sadie is definitely struggling, struggling with depression. Uh, her mental health is not there. Um, you know, spoiler alert when her husband dies, uh, but we'll leave who her husband is for later. Um, wait, is she married to him or she was engaged to him? Neither. So So he, he wanted, no, he kept proposing and wanted to get married and she didn't believe in marriage. Um, but they were expecting a child together. The father of her child. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So she was, um, the father of her child, the father of her child dies, uh, while she's pregnant. And then she struggles with this. You know, she's becoming now a single mom. She thought she was going to have someone supportive and loving in her life to help her raise this child. And she completely abandons all of her responsibilities. Uh, She doesn't uh, show up to work. She doesn't assign assignments to her team. She no longer uh, directs everyone at work. So her whole life falls apart and she completely falls apart with it by not doing what she's supposed to do instead of distracting herself. And I feel like throughout the whole uh, book, she was distracting herself. You know, maybe that was her coping thing, um, making the comfort game uh, her her ex-abuser. You know, like, oh, he's not going to win over me. Look, I'm still going to play this game. Who knows? But she completely falls apart uh, towards the end of this book and completely um, buries herself, you know, like a tick in her own sorrow, so to speak. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I I mean, I you could tell throughout the book that she's not exactly a super happy uh, woman. When her and Dove break up for the first time, she buries herself in her bed in her dorm room and doesn't come out until Sam comes by repeatedly, literally tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow until she comes around and he says, let's make a video game together. So I feel like she is always struggling with her mental health unless it has to do with, you know, creating video games, something she loves, uh, except uh, maybe Sam brings her out in the end, but there is in, in the middle there when she loses her her baby daddy, so to speak, um, you know, that she just completely falls apart and lets it happen, which is the first time we really see her do that other than uh, uh, Dove. So I think when it comes to uh, male characters that she has relationships with, she just lets herself fall apart, which is another symbolism, perhaps, of sexism. Hmm. Yeah, I think I I really liked the way that Gabrielle Zevin handled mental health in this book. And I think that it was clear that Sadie, this is something that she struggled with, even from the time that we meet her as a 12 year old, 11 or 12 in the very beginning, where she is reflecting on feeling cast aside by her family, by her parents, because she does have an older sister who's a couple of years older than her, who is undergoing cancer treatment she's in and out of the hospital for for cancer she does eventually recover if anybody was wondering and she lives a healthy life after that but during this few year span while she is going through treatments Sadie reflects on feeling like I said cast aside by her family nobody pays attention to her they don't know if she's eaten at one point she's starving she hasn't eaten in hours and you know when she's trying to find food everybody's just like just go sit down and be quiet somewhere because your sister's sick and we have to focus on your sister and I think that this idea that Sadie has to just sit aside and be quiet and her concerns are not important or or not valued is why we eventually see her struggling with the things we see her struggling with in the future where it comes to Dove and then eventually her issues with Sam. But I, I, I thought it was interesting to kind of see that happen early on in her life. 
And then, yes, as she gets older, we see her struggling with it after the breakup with Dope. And I think that was just from a lack of coping skills. In addition to, you know, she really probably was, she, you know, she's not diagnosed in the book, but she probably really was struggling with depression and she needed to be treated for it. And she wasn't, and nobody else in her life outside of Sam was really doing anything to, to help her at that point. And then again, we see her go through the same spiral again later on where her whole life is kind of ripped apart and she doesn't, she feels lost um, after the death of her, um, not her husband, (laughs) but her partner. And we see her going through that same cycle of depression where she has no motivation to go to work. She has no motivation to get out of bed. Uh, The only difference being in this scenario is that she is now going to have a child that she's going to have to be present for. And I think that's what eventually does get her out of it. I think we also see her struggling with pressure with the video game world. So when the first uh, game Ichigo becomes really popular, she does kind of go through a less severe depression where she starts really getting angry at Sam and, and a little bit of Marks as well feeling like they were taking over her game, even though once again, she was kind of, she told them, yeah, you do this. I don't want to do it. You go and do it. And then getting mad at them for doing it. Um, And then same thing with both sides. Now when her second game, when that doesn't do well, she kind of holds up again and it's Sam. And I think Marks who kind of pull her out of that at that point as well, that, you know, just because you have this one failure doesn't, reflect on who you are as a person and you know it's not it's it's okay you're going to get past this and it's going to be okay but to her it was the end of the world you know she just was spiraling so I really liked the way that we saw this consistency in Sadie's character I really liked the way it was handled I think we do see this in other areas so we uh, talked about a little bit earlier the woman who committed suicide you know got into that a little bit with feeling like she just like, what was the point? You know, she just kept doing the same thing. She tried so hard and kept trying and trying and trying, and it just didn't make a difference in the end. And she eventually, you know, chose to commit suicide, which luckily Sadie never got to that point, but maybe she would have if Sam or or Marks hadn't stepped in at some point. Yeah. That's interesting to note because I remember uh, when the woman does jump uh, commit su- committing suicide, when she's dying and Sam's mother is there with her, uh, she says, I-, I have to ask you what made you do it, you know? Yeah. And she's like, I- I'm sorry, I asked that. And she was like, no, she goes, I just didn't know how else to leave. Yeah. And that was very impactful to read that. That yeah. scene was um, was tough. Yeah. It was so sad because I-, I maybe part of me wants to think that maybe it's just a symbolism for a woman, you know? I mean, also she, she being an Asian woman, maybe that's also an, an added complication, uh, but just a symbolism for a woman not knowing how to make it in a man's world and just mm-hmm. giving up where Sadie, when she wanted to give up, she had friends and her friends pulled her through, I, yeah. I guess. Ironically, those friends were, were male, mm. <laughs> but you know, yeah. Ziploc. Yeah. Actually, just to kind of go back to our discussion on the sexism, that actually is a really good point to bring up that both of her friends, Sam and Marks, were men, but they both had like a thing for her. They just never told her 
until at some point, you know, one of them does, but they, you know, they were really only friends with her because they secretly were pining for her. And, and you know, eventually they became colleagues in making a game together, but that's kind of what drove the the friendship to begin with. Hmm. That brings us to the next question, which is really good thought-provoking question. Sadie's new game idea after Ichigo is called Both Sides and explores the tale of a girl caught between real life and a fantasy world. Sadie explains that she came up with the idea on the night Sam was missing. So what do you think this indicates about Sadie's mental state and happiness relative to her life? Yeah, I loved this part of the book. So I, when I was reading it, I, I thought it was really interesting that Sadie is, I think this is how Sadie really feels in her life. She's kind of caught between this reality that she is unhappy with and this fantasy world of a video game where she can make it, you know, she can make this fantasy world into whatever she wants. She can make it into a world that she enjoys more than the one that she's in. But at the end of the day, she has to keep coming back to this reality. And once again, I think that really speaks volumes about her mental state. I think it really explains depression really well, that you can kind of look at your life and feel like, I just wish this wasn't my life. I wish that this was my life instead. Um, and in the real world, Sadie really didn't take any actions to improve her life. So everything in her life was propelled by something else. So, um, you know, as a kid, she's being thrown into situations because of her sister. She doesn't really have a lot of friends. She's just kind of parted from here to there and is at the will of her parents. As she gets older, she's in school and she's kind of once again in the situation where she doesn't have a lot of friends. It's really difficult for her to make friends. So she doesn't really have a lot of connection. And then it's she, I don't think she ever really would have made Ichigo or a video game that would have become as successful if it hadn't been for Sam literally hounding her and saying like, I want to make a game with you. I want to make a game with you. And he really convinces her to do it. And she's like, I don't think we should. I don't know. I still have to do this or, you know, and then eventually he pushes her and she's like, all right, yeah, let's do this. And then it's the same thing, you know, with her relationship with Dove where, you know, she feels like maybe I don't want to be in this relationship, but she just allows the relationship to happen. You know, it was actually kind of abrupt even because when they get back together, well, first of all, when they first get together, they're out to lunch, her and Dove, and he's just like, I want to take you back to my apartment. And she just says, okay, and just goes, even though she maybe, you know, wasn't sure if she wanted to or not. And then the second time she goes to ask him for the game and then they're just back together at that point. And once again, we will get into this a little bit more where it comes to Sam. She ends up blaming Sam for this, but she kind of just allows this relationship to happen without saying like, actually, I don't know if this is what I want. Um, and I think that her lack of action in so many different areas of her life is what impacts her, her depression and vice versa. I think her depression also makes her feel ambivalent about a lot of things. I think she kind of feels apathetic in a lot of ways because she does have this depression that's constantly in the back of her, that's going untreated. And, you know, her really, her only outlet really is video games. So I really liked this idea in the book of the game 
I thought it was a really cool way of describing mental health and mental health struggles in a way that somebody like Sadie would understand when it comes to video games. And I think that it just, this whole situation, this whole game and how it was explained really said a lot about her mental state and how she viewed her life, which is unhappy. Yeah. I, I yeah. I think this stems back also to the thought of female oppression. So real life and fantasy world, you know, uh, she wants to be the video game producer, you know, a video game creator in a man's industry, so to speak. So she wants to excel, but she doesn't want to excel just because she's a woman and she can sleep with whoever to get their video game, you know, enhancements or whatever. But in, in reality, she's kind of faced with with the decision with Dov, she wants something from him and he wants to sleep with her. So she thinks, oh, I'll, I'll get what I need if I just give him what he wants. Uh, so she's kind of surrendering there. So she's never really, her real life is kind of just surrendering to this industry that's patriarchal, uh, where she's a female who, who really would like to succeed. So the whole fantasy world aspect of it would be her succeeding, you know? So I like the whole idea of that being both sides where her depression is really just a symbolism of, of, I mean, uh, her depression is really a symbolism of like female oppression. But in, in the aspect, I did like this part too about the both sides. I really love the writing of this because when her and Sam were kind of estranged uh, in this section of both sides, their paragraphs, their, um, you know, uh, what's going on in their life is also estranged. They're completely separated. They're not brought together. There's like the separation of A, Sadie, and B, Sam or vice versa and it's not really like them combined together because they're not working side by side um, on this project they you know he wasn't really supportive of this project uh, so I, I think I think it's interesting too because when she uh, is missing Sam that night and she can't find him she has a revelation that she does care for Sam she cares if he's missing she cares about what happens to him uh, and she never really had anybody care for her as much or she feels that way because all the attention was on her sister who was sick when she was growing up so I think it, you know, she doesn't want to live in the real life. She gets depressed in the real life in her fantasy world or wherever else she can transport herself to. When she creates games, she becomes somebody else. The novel explores themes of power, control, and privilege in various areas of life. In what ways do we see these themes play out throughout the book? I mean, we definitely see the power struggle with yeah. females in this industry. We see the power struggle with Dove in the relationship and just overall, even with his students. Uh, he's controlling by putting her on the bed and naked, telling her you're going to be naked and you're going to be in handcuffs and just leaving her there. And he's getting full authority to do that, even though that's not what she really wants. She doesn't say no, you know. So I think that uh, all of that and the privilege, too, of being a male in this industry, which is predominantly male, I think we see that throughout the entire novel. Uh, we see that also. Um, but in a different way, it's a different power struggle when it comes to, uh, let's say, like, you know, coming up in the 80s or 90s um, for, you know, uh, homosexual um, people that are that want to marry uh, same sex relationships. Um, we see issues with that as well. And them playing out uh, being in this video game world is kind of on par with how females were treated, um, perhaps even worse. You know, uh, a man is killed 
not to give anything away later on, we'll get into it, but a man is killed over the fact that they allowed same-sex marriages inside of a game. Yeah. So, you know, we see that throughout the entire book that there's there's so many different levels of power, control, and privilege. And I think that's interesting to have that many levels in a book that's about video games. Videos have levels. So again, I think that Gabrielle uh, Zevin's writing is, is very powerful when it comes to that. She definitely mm-hmm. gets her messages across well. Yeah. Yeah, I think we see a lot of the power and control in the relationship with or between Sadie and Dove. We, you know, we definitely talked about that. Um, I think we also see this a little bit between the relation in the relationship between Sadie and Sam, where while reading, it constantly felt like there was a power struggle between the two. Not so much when they Mm -hmm. first started working together, but once Ichigo finally started getting popular. At that point, I felt that their relationship kind of took a turn where they were constantly kind of struggling with, well, this is what our next project is going to be. Well, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. And it was just a lot of back and forth and a lot of animosity between them. And that kind of ties in with the control is that, you know, they each wanted to be in control of this this project or this, you know, what, what would you call it? I don't, I don't know what it's called, but their company, I guess it's a company, <laughs> Unfair Games. Yeah, company. Um, yeah. Right. So they're, they're fighting for control over, you know, what direction that's going to go into. And then when it comes to privilege, I thought that this was seen a lot in the novel with Marx and Sam when it came, you know, and, and really all of the the minorities in the book, because, you know, you could also talk about uh, Sam's grandparents and his mom, but there were just things that they were not able to do because of their cultural background. And I think that plays into the privilege, especially in the scene I mentioned earlier, where Marx is asking his friend, you know, how come I, I can't get these roles and these plays that I want? And he's telling him it's because of his ethnicity, but his friend didn't have any issues with that. You know, the people that were around him were not having these same struggles. They had the privilege of being able to go audition for a role and not having to worry about you know, what they look like. And I felt that that was pretty consistent throughout the novel. Um, I think that Sam dealt with that as well. When it came to his disability, he felt like he was much more disadvantaged and he was, there were a lot of things he couldn't do. It was difficult for him even to just go walk to Sadie's apartment because of the issues that he had with his foot, which for, for anybody that hasn't read the novel, his foot was severely damaged in the car accident when he was a kid. And even though they do, you know, numerous surgeries, it really, it, it never fully healed and he couldn't really use it. Um, so I think we see that in the novel as well as the privilege of just being able to walk on your own two feet and walk to your friend's apartment without having to have a struggle. Um, right. And I, I think to go along with the sexism privilege of, you know, what men are able to do in a world run by men versus what women are able to do or how much harder they have to work in certain fields, especially. So I, I really, I do really appreciate Gabrielle Zevin's writing. I, I thought the the writing in this novel was fantastic. And I thought that she handled all mm-hmm. of these themes really well. And I thought she got the points across without hitting you over the head with them. You know, it, it was subtle yes. at points, but you really got the message. And, and I appreciate that. Yeah, subtle, but impactful. For yeah. Sure. 
Yeah. And, and going back both sides too, I mean, Sam experienced that himself because he was struggling with his real life versus his fantasy world. You know, he wanted to, uh, you know, have Sadie. He wanted to uh, do all these things that he never just communicates at all. He can't, you know, because of the uh, car accident, it completely, you know, damaged his foot for the, his, the rest of his life. He lost his mom in the car accident. So many things happened because of that. Uh, and I feel like he struggles as well um, in that area where, you know, even though he wasn't on board with her project to make both sides, he also, maybe he was just being, it was a defense mechanism because he also felt that way. And he was trying to deny that to himself. Yeah. Interesting thought. So, yeah. It's actually really interesting well, because throughout this book too, Sam kind of views Sadie as this person who like has everything, you know, she can do anything. She can live her best life. And she kind of views Sam as that, like, she knows that he has the disability, but she also feels very resentful towards Sam feeling like he gets all of the success and accolades for the game. And, you know, he, he doesn't seem gender. Yeah. And he doesn't seem to be, so they, they both felt that the other one was privileged in certain ways while they were both also mm -hmm. feeling very, you know, insecure about, about themselves at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It, that goes back to the miscommunication trope too, because he's looking at her saying, oh, well, things are coming easy to you because you're a pretty woman. And mm -hmm. he's, she's looking at him like, well, things are coming easy for you because you're a man in this industry. So yeah. And in addition to that, I know a big theme with Sam as well was classism. So I know he makes it a point to talk about how he always struggled in poverty. He was never well off where Sadie came from a very rich family who was always mm -hmm. able to give her whatever she wanted. And, you know, in that way, she was very privileged. And he, once again, I think always felt a little resentful of that as well. Yes. And also it goes back to uh, Sadie in that video game that was disturbing in the class. It disturbed the other female peer that was in the class. And the video game actually was, uh, you didn't get ahead if you complied, if if you were you know, being divergent against what you were supposed to do and actually ask questions and, and um, you know, fought against what you were uh, being presented with that you would get ahead in the game and that's how you leveled up. And it, the game was being like on some kind of a, a control line or something. And like, it had to do with Nazism, right? Because yeah. she comes from a J Jewish her heritage. Uh, so yeah. she created this game to say that, oh, you're not complying with the Nazis. Like if you're not doing what you're supposed to do, then you're rebelling and that you get ahead in the game. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that she might've had some conflict as well uh, about her own heritage, perhaps. Um, or about her struggles with what that heritage presents to her or has presented to people in, you know, of her, like her situation um, of mm -hmm. her culture in the past, like with the Holocaust and such. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of struggles in this yeah. book, a lot of themes <laughs> that yeah. uh, Gabrielle Zevin takes on and just really, um, like she, Alex said, doesn't shove yeah. it down your throat, but subtly just lets you know, like, Hey, there's a message here. Pay attention. She writes extremely complex characters. So these are real life struggles that real life people would have. And one person does not always have just one struggle in their life. They don't have just one issue or one flaw. They're complex. And Gabrielle Zevin really fleshed out these characters and really explores 
the different areas of their lives and, you know, where they are successful and where they maybe need to show some improvement and doesn't judge them for it. She just allows it to unfold on the page. And I just love that in a book when you're writing a, a character drama. I mean, that's what you want to see. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, the video game that they create is like two-dimensional, but the characters are so three-dimensional. So I like that as well to show like, oh, they're not two-dimensional like the video game itself, mm. not the video game, game character. Um, there's something more behind the scenes. So mm -hmm. it was yeah. good to read. Mm -hmm. So Sam appears to struggle with feelings of ineptitude throughout his life. In what ways do you see this throughout the novel? And why do you think this is a struggle for him? Yeah. So I think that Sam feels this way for a few reasons. So I think one is that he did struggle with racism throughout his life and that kind of had an impact on his self-identity. In addition, his disability, I think, is a real big driving force behind his feelings of ineptitude. And just in general, he's described as kind of a, a small guy, like not very, you know, not very manly he's That's kind fair. of yeah you know he he's I think he's he considers himself to be kind of this like non-masculine man that is unappealing to the opposite sex and I think we see this consistently in his relationships we definitely see it with Sadie where you know he acknowledges towards the end of the book that he always had feelings for her and he even feels jealous of her at one point for being in a relationship or he feels jealous of his friend for being in a relationship with her and he never feels confident enough to communicate how he's feeling because he feels that his emotions will not be reciprocated and he feels that just in general he's not maybe good enough and i think that that comes down to a lot of the struggles he had throughout his life and I, I think that's really where, where it comes from. I don't know if I have more to expand on that. Yeah, so I found myself feeling sorry for Sam a lot. Um, he was the one character I felt like had, you know, really the shit end of the stick. Uh, you know, when he was younger, he seen this woman fall to her death. He, you know, had to go escape essentially into video games um, multiple times in his childhood. Uh, that was his escape. So uh, he sees that issue happen. His mom, you know, had to handle that. And then when he gets into the car accident uh, with his mother, he not only loses her in the car accident, uh, but he, um, you know, is disabled for the rest of his life. His father was never really in the picture. So I think that also is, is something that, um, you know, he had to struggle with, of course. Uh, so I feel like, you know, when he was in the hospital, uh, after losing his mom, it's made clear by the nurses that he hasn't spoken to anyone. You know, he's kind of giving up. And Sadie keeps coming back because she's seeing her sister. So she becomes a friend. She does become a friend, even though she doesn't admit it as much as she should. Uh, and then the miscommunication starts there because for her bar mitzvah, I believe it is, that she has to have a certain amount of community points or something. So she has a timesheet that she fills out when she goes to see him. And he finds out about it from her sister, who I feel like maybe sabotaged that, or maybe she just wanted Sadie to be honest, um, however you want to see it. But basically, Sam finds out and assumes now, okay, the only person that I, you know, allowed myself to be open with after my mom's death is not maybe my friend at all. So I think that that had, uh, you know, that was really hard on him. He struggled with that. 
Uh, and then Iran, when they do reconnect again, you know, he is the driving force to want to make the name with her and to make her snap out of her situation. So, uh, you know, I just I see him struggling throughout the novel, especially with communication. Perhaps maybe he just feels like he's never good enough. I'm not sure what the issue is with him. I feel sorry for him. I do. And I I really wish he would have communicated with Sadie more. Perhaps maybe he would have gotten more of what he wanted. Maybe they were never really happy individually because they never really communicated to be together. Maybe that's something that's a message underlying there uh, because I do know that they aren't exactly happy unless they are working together. And perhaps their relationship should only be platonic, but uh, maybe it was meant to only be platonic. But when they are divided, you see in their work that it's not the same. It's not as efficient um, as when they do come together and create together on the same page everything always shines and it's more yeah. successful their products so yeah i think he does say at the end of the novel to sadie that he never told her how he felt because he never thought that she would feel the same or that you know he didn't think he was good enough for her so it, you can definitely see that that's kind of how he perceived himself yeah. yeah it could be why they were never really happy individually maybe because they were supposed to be together and it just never happened that way. And it could also explain why their need for a fantasy world, you know, he creates a game, Sam, at one point where he can be with Sadie. He basically creates the entire game for her to bring her back to reality, to bring her back from her fantasy depression or however you want to, um, it's not a fantasy depression, but a symbolism, you know, for her wanting to be in a different situation. So, uh, it's definitely he definitely goes out of his way to try and you know get her approval her attention um and to get her to be who she can be because he actually is one of the only ones in the school maybe most as well but he really does see her as uh, like someone who's successful and someone to look up to not necessarily um just a pretty face that can do something he sees her for who she is and how you know great and, and intelligent and creative she can be so mm -hmm. he sees the potential in her work um, where nobody else perhaps, you know, notices. I actually think Marx is the only one that really sees Sadie for who Sadie is. I think Sam sees Sadie and uses Sadie for his own purposes. So I think he hmm. saw the excellent work in Sadie's games. And I think he saw the potential that she would have. And I think he wanted to capitalize on that because at the point where they are reunited at the beginning of the novel, he's not even involved in making video games. He's studying to become an accountant or a mathematician or something along those lines. And he's not really right. happy with his career choice, but he just enjoys playing video games. He doesn't know anything about making them. And then he, he plays uh, uh, Sadie's game. She gives a copy to him as, you know, then says like, let me know what you think of it. I just made it for class. And I think he sees the potential for success but he can't do it without her. And I think he 100% uses her to get success because he can't do it without her. Um, so I, I do I feel that way. I, I see where you're coming from, but I don't know if I agree with that. I feel like Sam's escape is video games. And he, I feel like he sees uh, Sadie as an opportunity to continue um, you know, that escape. So maybe working with her will help him to escape further into video games. Maybe you're right. Maybe he is, um, you know, doing it for a selfish reason, reason, but 
neither of them have anybody in their life that can actually uh, be supportive for them to them hmm. uh, individually. So I feel like um, they're the only support system that they ever had. Uh, I feel like Mark's, yes, he was supportive with her, but also he wanted to sleep with her. I know that Sam maybe wanted oh. to sleep with her, but he never brings that to her attention. Maybe he just felt like it would ruin the dynamic of their work together because they do work so well together. Uh, so maybe, I don't know. I'm I don't think they do. I don't think they do work well together. I don't think they are a good match in a relationship. I don't think they're a good match professionally. In a friendship I, I, yeah. I think they, well, they do they make produce... more successful games when they work together. Yeah. But I, I think their professional relationship is to, uh, confrontate, like, I don't know. They, they just don't seem compatible in, and I think part of it is that Sadie is really difficult to work with, but I, I disagree about neither one of them having a support. I do think that Marx was a very big support to Sam. I think that he was a genuinely oh, good friend to Sam. And I think he had yes. a really good support in him. I think he was also a good support to Sadie. I mean, just because you're, you know, in a relationship with somebody doesn't mean that you can't have them as a support. I mean, I would consider my husband a huge support in my life. And it's not only because, you know, we can be intimate. It's because, you know, there's other reasons why he's a support. So I think Marx, Marx was my favorite character in the book. And I think he was a genuine support to both Sam and Sadie. And I think he is the only right. reason that they ever worked well together. I think he was the glue that kept their whole company together. And that well, he was also the financial glue really well. good games. Yeah, he was. Um, but I think that his dynamic being a support for both sides is what allowed them to work together as successfully as they did for as long as they did. And I think as soon as you took him out of the equation, I, I don't see them being able to work together again. It's just my, I don't know. It's just I, I agree I feel with about you it. about Mark's being my, I agree with you about Mark's being my favorite character in the book. I just feel like he's the yeah. only non-toxic character yeah. in the book. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about all the characters, but of the main characters, uh, Sadie three. and Sam are toxic individually for sure. And yeah. toxic together, except when it comes to creating video games together. I feel like they do well at that. Um, well, when they're on the same page, <laughs> in the <Yeah>. same boat. <laughs> uh, Marks, though, I mean, he's the only one who is supportive of everyone. He really is a great mm -hmm. guy. Yeah. Uh, he's supportive. He helps you know, and perhaps maybe it's a little selfish because he wants to make money too. And he doesn't develop video games. He's just their financial backer. But he's always supportive with Sam with everything. I mean, when everybody was, you know, uh, neglecting Sam's needs or whatever the case may be, he was his roommate. And he always made sure he went out of his way to help him and do the right thing. And then when Sadie comes on board, uh, he's he's supportive with her as well. And maybe it's for other reasons because he's a guy and that has some undertones in the book. Who knows? Uh, but he's definitely supportive because if she doesn't make games, he doesn't make money either. Don't forget. Yeah, but, but he once didn't, they become he... An, a relationship, I, I feel like that that's not the case. I, I don't get that vibe but from Marks. He didn't ask to be I, involved I get a good vibe, with the video but... games. They asked him, you know, they he wasn't like, oh, you guys are making a video game. I want to be in on that. They were like, hey, we need to make well, a video I said game. I don't get and that vibe. You're from rich. Marks, so, yeah. Well, yeah, I don't okay. get that vibe from him. He's the only, like I said, only non-toxic character in the in the main character in the book and the only non-toxic pe person in their lives. <laughs> yeah. Because everyone else is toxic around them. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. Sam's mom wasn't toxic. Um, 
but no. she, she dies when he's very young so and his grandparents are very supportive as well he's just doesn't oh, live yeah, close to true. them and I think we get the impression that Sadie's family isn't necessarily unsupportive of her I think she's just not too close with them but there is one scene where she you know is communicating with her sister who she's not very close with but her sister still says like oh you made a video game that's awesome I'm gonna play it tonight even though she's very busy she's a doctor now and she still makes the time to play it because it's her sister so I think they do have other supports they're just not in the same area they don't live near each other because they grew up in California and they both now live in Boston so they're just far away from some of their other supports right and we don't really see those relationships much in the book yeah I know. And Sam just wants Sadie to be his like support or he wants to be the support for her too. And sometimes it just doesn't work out that way. Yeah. The novel explores the politics of same sex marriage and homophobia. So how do you think this topic was handled in the novel? I thought that Gabrielle Zevin did a really good job of handling this topic. So this book takes place prior to same sex marriage being legalized and I guess at the time you didn't really see it in media and people were really upset that it was included in this video game. You touched on this a little bit earlier. So what happens basically is that these two young individuals come to the place where Sadie and Sam have their company headquarters. They're actually out promoting a different game and Marx is there And they come with the intention of killing Sam because they believe that Sam is kind of the mastermind behind this game, which he really wasn't. I don't even think he made this game. They, at this point, they own this company and they have other people working there that are also developing games. And it was their game instead. And either way, they see him as the face of unfair games. So they came with the intention of killing him. And instead, Marx is kind of caught in the crossfire and is killed. So I thought that she handled this really well. This seems like a realistic thing that has happened, that would happen. And I think that she she handled it with a lot of, again, subtlety. It wasn't, you know, you, you weren't being smashed over the head with her message, but you still got the point. Um, and I think she did a good job of of really navigating this topic in the novel. I agree. I think her writing was excellent. And her message was well received. Uh, And it's definitely realistic, like you said. I mean, especially, you know, at this time frame where they're developing these games, it was kind of taboo to have anything like that in media or in video games. And people weren't responding well, as we see. And they accused Sam of it because he had an, I don't know if he was the, the mastermind that made this game, but he was the face of it since he was uh it was like an online world play and he was the mayor right he like made mm-hmm. himself the mayor uh so That's people right. assumed that he was the you know the the backing force of this game and they do have uh employees that work for them that are um do have a same uh sex uh relationship they did go and get married before the ruling was overturned and they wanted to include them. They wanted to show that they're included, basically, and have their marriage redone in their video game. So they established that in their game world. Uh, and obviously, these individuals had an issue with it, which is very realistic. Like we said before, sexism is very much still alive in this world, unfortunately. And and so is homophobia. We see that all the time. 
Uh, so especially in this time frame. Uh, so I think that the message was yeah. handled well. I think the writing was very powerful. I think that um, it seems very realistic that something like that could have happened, unfortunately. Uh, and, you know, it just goes to show that, you know, it, it's a lot of different faces throughout the decades of video game creation. It does show that, you know, you're not allowed to put certain things, or at least at this time, you weren't allowed to put certain things into games. You weren't allowed to be a certain gender. It was more, you know, one side of gender who was making and creating these games, and that was more well-received by the public. So I think she kept, uh, Gabrielle Zevin really kept in par with, uh, with you know, letting us know that video games were reflective of certain times and topics. Yeah. And I like that she layers in this, you brought this up too, about how in real life, you know, they did get married, but then it was overturned and they were able to put it into the video game instead. And it's similar to Sam and Sadie, where in their video game versions of their lives, they can kind of pursue their their wants and desires that they maybe feel hindered from doing in reality. So right. it, it once again, it just plays back to that theme as well. Yes, for the back uh, for both sides and how their reality and their fantasy worlds sometimes yeah. dip into one another. Yeah. So as I mentioned, during this scene, Marx is killed in the gunfire from these individuals who who came to with the intention of killing Sam. So in part six of the book titled NPC, which stands for non-playing character, it's kind of like when you're playing a video game, it's the computer playing. What did you think about the author's decision to change perspectives and point of view during this part? And it also explores topics of death and the decision to ultimately pull the plug on someone who has been unresponsive for several months. So Marx has been in a coma at this point. What did you think of this section of the book overall? This was my favorite part of the book. Yeah. This was so well-written. The change of perspective was so impactful. You know, it really brought you there. You were in the moment. You were the NPC. Uh, and I think this just goes to show that even though we consider Marx uh, one of the main characters, he kind of was considered an NPC by Sam and Sadie the entire time. They never really showed appreciation for, you know, his financial backing, uh, for the fact that he always supported Sam and that he was there for him. You know, he was the NPC character in a sense. Uh, so I just thought it was genius of her writing style uh, to just include this as a you. It was a second narration. Um, you were the one that was in this situation. You were in a coma. You know, even though we know that it was Mark's, while reading it, it's the reader that's transported into this situation and watching everyone around you, uh, you know, even though you can't communicate. And I think it goes back mm -hmm. to with the miscommunication trope that's going on with Sam and Sadie. But it's so much more impactful here because he wants to communicate, Marks, and he can't. He can't mm -hmm. say anything to the people that are there with him, around him. And all he can do is just sit back while, you know, his coma takes over until his death. And it was yeah. pretty it was pretty wild to experience that it was it was a, a reader's experience for sure. And I think that that it, it made the book for me, because at one point I was just like, all right, what's happening? I was getting bored. I'll be honest. And then all of a sudden that happened. And I was like, wow, this is this is something. Yeah. It was something memorable um, yeah. in, in the book for me. Yeah, I agree. This chapter came at the perfect time in the book because like you, I was starting to feel frustrated leading up until this, this section, 
because I just felt like the same things kept happening. It was the same miscommunications or lack of communication and just a lot of frustration. And it was starting to get a little played out and a little boring. And then this chapter hit and I just, I felt so discombobulated after reading this chapter. I I actually couldn't even, I had to take a break from reading to, after I read this chapter, it just emotionally destroyed me. I felt so emotionally connected to Marx who throughout this book, we're not really seeing anything from his point of view. And then all of a sudden we're inside his head while he's in this coma. And, you know, like you said, Jess, we're experiencing this kind of purgatory in between life and death where he has cognitive ability and you can kind of see it coming in and out. So at some points he is, you know, kind of in the room, he he's present with his body. And then at other points, you know, he's flying through a video game world and you can kind of see where he's just towing the line between life and death. And I just thought the writing was heartbreaking. This whole chapter, I was just an emotional wreck. And I thought that the decision to change perspectives and the point of view was the perfect decision to make from a writing standpoint. It made the most impact. And it just, I can't say enough good things about this chapter in particular. I mean, this, it just, it just destroyed me. I can't, it's just, I I thought it was masterful. Yeah, it, 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 in a sense, goes back to how I wanted this to be a (laughs) sci-fi. It's not a sci-fi, this section by any means, but it does put you into the role as if you're playing a video game. When you play a video game, you take on the role of someone else. And in this section, as the reader, you become someone else. You know, you take on the role of Marx and he's dying uh, and he experienced something so traumatic and you're able to actually, you know, walk in his footsteps and, you know, be in his position and literally play his role as if he was a video game. So I just thought that from a video game book, from a writer's perspective, this was brilliant. Yeah. And I did really like Mark's because at first when I first read this, I was like, I have no idea what the hell NPC means. So they did explain it in the book. I'm, I'm not a video game person. Um, so I, I was maybe like, I don't are the NPC. Ooh. Maybe I am. I don't know. But I, I was like, I have no idea what NPC is supposed to stand for. Even like when I when I first get a book, I usually look at the chapter titles and stuff like that. And when I saw that section title, I was like, what the hell? Um, and then they explain it means, you know, non-playing character, non-player character. And I really liked how Marx during this chapter was reflecting on that's how he kind of felt throughout his life is he was always the side character. He was never even in his uh, career pursuits, you know, which we talked about earlier where he was struggling. He really wanted these main character roles and he couldn't get them. And that's just how he kind of felt throughout his life. He was always the sidekick. He was always the supporting friend. He was never the main character. And now he's dying and it's too late. And it was just so sad. I I just, this whole chapter, like I said, it just, it just killed me. (laughs) It just killed me. Yeah. And and it's interesting too, because going back to Gabrielle Zevin's writing really quick as an author, uh, I feel like maybe we were bored and it was depressing the rest of the book because we were supposed to be taking on the role of Sadie and Sam as well and experiencing what they were experiencing in a sense. I mean, not as impactful, obviously, as this section was, 
Um, but that could be also part of it as well. Like, you know, they were depressed, so we're depressed sitting well, there reading it, unless that's just 100%. my outtake. I mean, you can't, th- this is not a fun book to read. This is mm-hmm. not a happy book. It's not a fun book, but no, it's depressing. It, it, it would be weird to read a book about somebody who's depressed and feel happy. <laughs> you know like that that oh, would yeah. that Look would be, her. she's down like, that yeah. would that would be a yeah, serious exactly. issue in the book um so agreed you know we're we're not reading about happy people we're reading about sad complicated people and the struggles that they've been through and then we're watching them continue to go through these struggles throughout the novel so I mean it it would be weird if this was a fun book to read Yes. And if, if you're going into this expecting it to be fun, just know that it's not. It's just not that kind of book, you know. No, that and, doesn't and it's mean not it's sci-fi. Not, yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean <laughs> that it's a bad book. It's just a different kind of book. Yes. So yeah. And I feel bad for the book as well because I came off reading Fourth Wing and then reading this book. And I was just like, uh <laughs> there's no dragons. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, no. it's, a, it's no. a different reading experience. Exactly. Sure. I yeah. personally came from fantasy world into real life with this book. <laughs> yeah, so that's yeah. on me. Yeah. <laughs> so Sadie has a tendency to feel frustrated with some of her life experiences, but doesn't actively make an effort to change those circumstances. For example, her relationship with Dove, the perception that Sam was the mastermind behind Ichigo, you know, resenting him for the success um, for the uh, press and public thinking that he was responsible for all the work she put in the death of marks she even ends up blaming sam for these circumstances so do you think she's justified in placing the blame on sam absolutely not so this i i think i touched on this a little bit earlier in that sadie has a tendency to externalize all of the issues in her life So when it comes to her relationship with Dove, she blames Sam because he's the one that wanted her to go to him to get the game. And she believes that he should have known better because he knew that they had been in a relationship as if that would really make a difference in the first place. I think Sam was just thinking about it logically, like, hey, we need a resource. You have this connection. He may or may not have known that they were in a relationship. I don't really think it matters if he knew or not. He was just saying, let's use the resources we have available to us to make this a successful game. And she, because that then turned into a relationship with Dove, she then blamed Sam for that, which I think is completely unjustified. That was your decision, Sadie. Nobody convinced you to get into a relationship with Dove. You chose that. And then the fact that Sam, you know, people perceive Sam to be the mastermind behind Ichigo, once again, she could have gone with them on these tours around the country to promote the game and explain the game. And she chose not to, she said she didn't want to. And so Sam went and Sam even tried to tell her, like, I think you should come with us. And she said, no, no, this is your thing. I don't want to do it. And then got mad at him for doing it and blamed him because people then perceived him to be the mastermind. But why would they think anything different when he's the one out there promoting it and talking about it and they don't know anything about her? And then finally, with the death of Marx, this is the most unjustified, in my opinion. If Sam had been there, he would have been killed. And it's it's horrible and it's a tragedy that Marx was killed, but that's not Sam's fault that he wasn't there. And who knows, if he had been there, maybe these shooters would have killed both of them, because I think Marx is the type of person that wouldn't have left Sam alone with these people anyway. You know, even in the scene itself, he sends all of the employees up to the roof 
up to the roof to find safety. And he's the one that goes down and tries to talk to these people and deescalate them on his own. So there's no way to say that even if Sam had been there, that she wouldn't have still lost marks. She just blames him because these people were coming after Sam specifically, but that was their own misconception as well. So I have a big problem with this. And to me, this was very, all all of these situations were very immature of Sadie. I think it shows a lot of, uh, a lack of self-reflection, a lack of critical thinking, and just a lack of accountability for her own actions in some of these situations. And then lack of accountability for just other people's actions. You know, Sam is not always going to be the the reason that things go wrong in your life and he you know he you're giving him too much power (laughs) to me she was trying to vilify sam for no reason when she was just upset with herself and the things in her life and she needed somebody to blame and for some reason she chose sam yeah i agree sadie frustrated me so much i I really i don't like her as a character Uh, i respect you know the writing of her character. I think she's a complex character and she's a great complex character, but I don't like her personally. She frustrates me so much with her resentment of Sam and putting him blame on everything. First of all, uh, for them, for those kids coming, uh, the, the shooter for coming at Mark's killing Mark's, but you know, looking for Sam, it was actually her decision. I believe uh, to put that into the game um, that, you know, you have same sex marriage for their, co-workers um not that that's something that would warrant anyone to kill somebody that's horrific but i'm just saying um she puts the blame on sam for that you know what was sam to do he was the victim in that situation and she's sitting there blaming him so that really annoyed me the whole thing about her being jealous like you said about ichigo she had every right to go there and um you know promote the product that she made she could have been standing in front and saying yeah i'm a female i made this you know or doing whatever she needed to do but instead she took a step back uh and <clears throat> she didn't want any part of the the promotion factor with her relationship with dove i mean she just you know she just sat there again once again and did nothing to express herself and say this is not what i want you know this isn't a healthy relationship you're toxic for me um everything that she did she just you know she didn't she didn't stick up for herself in any way. Uh, and I mean, maybe this is just going back to things in her um, her childhood, the way that she was brought up and, you know, things going back to her depression. And I understand that. And I, you know, I, I feel for her mental health issues. I do. But blaming Sam and putting all the blame on this one person for your actions or for the actions of others is just despicable, you know? And that's something that definitely was the driving force in, um, as reflected in her, you know, poor work ethics towards the end and the deterioration of her friendship with him for sure. So, you know, there's a lot of things that she did that just frustrated me as a reader. What do you think Sam and Sadie could have done to address these issues head on rather than choosing not to address their concerns throughout the novel? All they had to do was communicate, man. That's it. (laughs) If she felt a certain way, talk to him. Don't avoid him. Don't just let it happen. You know, if she has an issue with somebody uh, treating her a way she doesn't like, going back to Dove, say something. Don't put yourself in that situation. It's not Sam's fault that you got back with him just because he wanted to see if maybe they could use a piece of his game. All she had to do was say, hey, I want to use a piece of your game. Is that cool? And he probably would have said, sure. 
you know, but instead she felt like she had to be in a relationship with him and be miserable. No. Uh, and that's definitely not Sam's fault. So I think anything that they had, any issues that they had, they, it was just, again, that miscommunication trope, which I just don't like. <laughs> um, but the miscommunication trope in there that, you know, they communication would solve so much where miscommunication is causing issue. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think, especially as long as these two individuals have known each other, they should have been able to communicate. The The scene that sticks out in my mind that bothered me the most uh, in Sadie's character and just in general in the novel where I was starting to feel really frustrated is when she finds the game that she had given Sam at the beginning of the book that she made for class. And she said, you know, test this out. And it says something on there about her being in a relationship with Dove. Something, there was like a note, I I don't remember the exact details, but it was insinuated that they were in a relationship. And she says, well, he had to have known then. And that's why this is all his fault that I was in a relationship with him. She chooses not to address it with him, but builds this resentment in her and really like a, a hatred towards Sam. And then when she shares these concerns with Marx, Marx tells her, well, actually, I'm the one that, you know, Sam, because of his foot, wasn't getting up and getting things and putting them into the thing. I was the one doing that. So it's actually very realistic that Sam would not have seen this note that he wouldn't have been the one to do it. It would have been me, not him. And she just completely disregards that information and says, well, no, he, he knew, he knew it doesn't matter. He knew. And it just bothers me so much because a, all she had to do really was go to Sam and say like, Hey, when you played this game, you know, did you see the note in there that said, you know, it was from this person or that we were were together? And if so, you know, I wish you wouldn't have asked me to go and get the game from him. Or maybe we could have come to some agreement where we went together if she had communicated it to him at the time, where, where she could have said, hey, listen, I used to be in a relationship with this person. I was really heartbroken when we ended things. I don't feel comfortable going and asking for this game. Will you or Marks come with me? Because I could really use the support here. And instead, she just chooses time and time again not to express herself, not to communicate her feelings, her concerns, and then chooses to blame things externally. And Sam... I don't even know if Sam doesn't communicate that, you know, he, I think he communicates better than Sadie. We certainly see him not communicating his feelings, but he does communicate with her professionally. And after the death of Marx, we do see him really making an effort to try to communicate with her and saying, Hey, we need to talk about this. And she just refuses. And so I think a lot of the issues between Sadie and Sam throughout their friendship from the time that they were kids to the time that they are adults could have been resolved if they had just spoken to one another and communicated like friends should. Uh, yes. This even, I know you were concerned about this as well in the beginning of the book where she is getting her community service hours for her bat mitzvah by visiting Sam at the hospital, which she started out with a friendship with him. And then it just it so happened that she would be able to get her community service done for doing that. So she kind of was like, oh, I'll kill two birds with one stone. I'll see my friend and I'll get my hours. So I don't really have to do community service. But when Sam 
directly confronts her about it and asks her about it, she lies. She doesn't right. communicate with him. She doesn't explain the situation to him. And he gets very upset, which is understandable, where she could have just said once again, hey, yeah, you know, I am getting community service hours for this. But listen, it didn't start until after we had already formed a friendship. This was just me kind of getting out of doing community service. I'm basically just hanging out with my friend for a few hours every day. And I get to use it for my my hours. But it really has nothing to do with a fake friendship. It's just me kind of beating the system. And I think he would have understood that. I think he probably would have found that a little funny, but yeah. instead she lies to him. She's not honest. She doesn't communicate effectively and they end up not talking for years because of it. Yeah. So it really, all of the issues in this book come down to a lack of communication. Yep. She's deceptive with him instead of just being honest and upfront. She's even deceptive to her sister, Alice. Uh, when, you know, she tells Alice that she's, oh, not really friends with him. She's basically using him, but that's not the case for the community service. She really does consider him a friend. She enjoys his company. Uh, so, and then Alice spills the beans later and basically says, oh, you know, my sister asked her to fill out her timesheet or something. And I feel like had she had been open with her sister even and said, yes, I do consider this this boy a friend, maybe her sister wouldn't have felt that way. Maybe her, her sister felt that he was being a burden or something, or she's jealous of the community service or whatever, not considering their friendship that it was actually real. And once again, that goes back to the fantasy world, you know, um, trope as well. But uh, I feel like 100% lack of communication was their biggest issue uh, throughout the entire session of their friendship decade after decade tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow miscommunication and miscommunication and miscommunication even in the future so <laughs> um and then another thing too that really you know annoyed me or frustrated me rather with her is that uh you know dove was getting in her head saying oh he's not really your friend oh he's just your co-worker oh he's not your friend but they were friends uh when dove hurt her he was there trying to get her out of bed just like later on when Mark dies and she's doesn't want to leave her house, he's there trying to get her out and, you know, go back into the world, the real world, um, you know, and it's just sad that, you know, she moves to to L.A. because Sam needs surgery on his foot and that's the better place for him. Basically, Mark's gives them, uh, you know, each other basically says, you know, Sam needs you to move uh, for Sadie and Sadie needs you to move for Sam type of thing. Um, and then once she finally does go there for him and he needs her more than ever to repay the fa favor of her, him always coming to her when she needs him, um, you know, once he gets his surgery, she says, oh, I'll be there as soon as you're out of surgery. And then she just doesn't show up because she has dove in her head saying he's not your real friend. I, that was awful. for her. That was just horrible for a friendship. Um, clearly, she wasn't his friend and he was hers. Well, I think at that point is when she was feeling resentful towards him because she believed about him knowing that yeah. she and Dove were in a relationship prior. So this is where right. she actually said to herself, he's not my friend because a friend wouldn't have sent me to go get the game from Dove. Right. But, so but, that, but that was suck her, it up. That was her thoughts though. That wasn't Dove's influence. That was her coming to that conclusion based on her misconception that Sam understood the relationship between Sadie and Dove and then intentionally like sent her to get this game, not caring about her feelings. Right. But suck it up because your friends, if you're a real friend, your friend is, had just had surgery on his foot. It was very traumatic experience. The reason that he had to get the surgery, everything behind it um, well, makes he, him who he is. He had an amputate. It was an amputation. Right. Too. He was amputated. Exactly. Yeah. 
So, you know, he she said, once you wake up, I'll be here. And then she just wasn't there. And that was so horrible and, and sad for Sam. Uh, and he didn't understand it. You know, she never communicated why. She could have went there, made sure she was there for him while he was healing, and then maybe brought up this disc and said, hey, did you happen to see this? Did this happen? That would have resolved a lot of issues as well. But, of course, that doesn't happen, and mm-hmm. that's not who she is. Yeah. So. After Sadie decides to leave Unfair Games, that's the name of their company that they made together, following the death of Marks and the birth of their child, uh, her and Marks's child, she cuts off all communication with Sam and ultimately moves across the country to resume her life with her daughter. She begins playing a game called Pioneers that she later finds out was created by Sam specifically to try to reconnect with her. It's a game based off of uh, a game that she had played when she was younger that she was really into. I forget the name of it. It was something trail. Yeah, Oregon Trail. Oregon Trail, right. Mm-hmm. He tells her that he made this game for her. Do you think Sadie is justified in feeling upset by this? Uh, yes, I do, actually. I thought that this was creepy. So he basically, he can't get in touch with her, which, you know, regardless of the circumstances surrounding their lack of community, at this point, they haven't seen each other or spoken to each other in years since Marx's death. And she decided to leave the company. And she intentionally goes away. She she kind of has cut him off. She doesn't want any communication with him. And he develops a game knowing that she'll want to play it so that he can then reconnect with her. To me, this is creepy. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe this is just me that feels that way. Uh, but I didn't think that this was a good way to go about this because then he also like he pretends to be not himself. So he's playing a character in the game and he is communicating with her and they're talking and she thinks that she's building a friendship with this person. And then it turned, and then actually in the game. So he, he plays actually a couple characters in the game. One is like her best friend in the game. And the other one is another female that she ends up marrying in the game. And both like at this whole time, she has no idea that it's him. And then he, he finally gives this reveal. She kind of figures it out and he gives the reveal And to think that you've been communicating with this person for, I think it was about a year or so without knowing that it was them, but they knew it was you. It's creepy. I don't like it. It's sneaky. And it does come down again to a lack of communication because you guys can't just be honest with each other. Like, Hey, by the way, this is, this is Sam. And you know what, if she doesn't want to have anything to do with you, whether it's justified or not, you shouldn't be forcing that upon her. Yeah, this is when I started to get frustrated with Sam too. You know, that whole chapter, it was cool to read because the chapter made you feel like you were in a video game. The writing was great once again. But this is going back to the deception between the two of them. Like, can't they just be themselves? And I know that this is a book about a video game and like technically when you're playing a video game, you're not yourself. Uh, So I get that, um, you know, that theme. But it, it was, it was, it was reminiscent to me of like, you know, you ignoring somebody's phone call, let's say, and then that person uh, blocks their number and calls you again or changes their phone number, calls you from a different phone number or something, yeah. something deceptive like that. That's like, well, you won't get in touch with me, so I have to try other means. But how creepy that he's doing this forever. They don't really specify how long, but it makes it seem like it might be months, maybe even a year or so. And, you know, you're feeling like you're uh, engaging with other people and other characters and then you just find out that deep down it's just 
somebody that you were ignoring for whatever reason, uh, you know, the reason is meaning, meaningless basically, because like Alex said, if, if that's your, if you, that's your choice, if Sadie didn't want to speak with him and didn't want to engage with him, you know, um, that's, that's, a, that's her decision. And now she's being forced to, uh, in a sneaky manner. And I, I just, this is really where I got frustrated with Sam. And I was like, this is desperate. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I, if it was different means and he was still close with her or he didn't try to deceive her pretending to be someone else and made this game to, um, you know, made this game for her, that would be sweet. But the way that it went about, it's just, it's creepy. Like you said. Yeah. I, they, they do specify, I think that it, it was a minimum of a year that they were playing this game together. So it, Which is it was insane. Yeah. It was at least a year, maybe a little bit longer, but I mean, it's just, I don't like it. I think it's sneaky. And I, so later on in the book, actually Dove uh, describes this to Sadie as Sam being romantic. So basically Sadie is explaining to him the game and what happened and how she felt about it. And Sam says something, I mean, Dove says something along the lines of, oh, he's such a romantic, that Sam, that little guy. Do you agree that it's romantic? So this goes back to him saying, Sam's not really your friend. Sam's not really your friend. And maybe he sensed that Sam wanted more than a platonic friendship and he was jealous. And now this goes back to knowing that she's no longer in contact with him to uh, admit that it's romantic because he's the type that would do, we, we obviously don't agree with his, you know, sexual kinks or whatever. Uh, we don't appreciate how he is. He's a terrible boyfriend. So for him to see this as romantic, I think he, one, he's he's a creep in his own right. So I think him seeing this as romantic is because of that. <laughs> but also, but I think he's actually being honest and upfront and saying it's romantic because he knows maybe Sam had these feelings for her. So mm -hmm. maybe he's able to admit that to her now in a sense, uh, because now he, he no longer poses a threat. Mm-hmm. I don't think Dove was trying to be malicious I, at, at this point in the novel. It's been years. They kind of like are reconnecting over lunch. This is where he's asking her to take over the job right. for him. He no longer and, cares. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think he was ever really trying to put Sam down. In fact, he actually speaks highly of Sam at many points in, in the novel prior to this. Uh, he thinks he's a very smart individual and he really appreciated his work on Ichigo, but he, I, I don't think Sam was a good friend and I don't think there's anything wrong with Dove saying that. I don't think, obviously, you know, I think this is creepy. I don't think it's romantic. I think Dove saying this, I understand how it can seem romantic. Like, oh my God, he built a game for you. And then he, cause he knew you were, would love it. That part, like you said, yeah, it, that's it, is, sweet. It, is, it is, it is romantic. It's him showing his appreciation and love for her in a way that she can understand that they, that he can express it and she can understand. Right. It was the way that he yeah, then chose deceiving to, her. Yeah. He, he then chose to interact with her knowing that she didn't want to interact with him and doing it anyway, without her knowing that part, I don't think is romantic. I think that's disrespectful. But, yeah. you know, the idea of making the game because he knew that it would be a game that she loved and she would need that something like that in her life it is is romantic. It was more about how he then played in the game that that I thought was creepy. Yeah. And she had every right to be upset by the deception that he caused by yeah. pretending to be who he wasn't. So, yeah.
Absolutely. You know, it completely defeats the whole purpose if it was supposed to be his way of being romantic. Yeah. Because it is a sweet gesture to make a game that, you know, he knows she loved, but he did it just to try to reconnect with her and he just didn't go about it the right way. And it just goes back to exactly how they never went about the right things with each other. Just the lack of communication was always there. Yeah. So. Also, I did like in this scene between Sadie and Dove where they kind of got closure with one another about their past. And she does say to him, you know, you were a pretty shit boyfriend. And he's kind of like, yeah, you know, you're not wrong. <laughs> like I was a shit husband. Yeah. I was a shit boyfriend. And it, it was actually, I thought, nice to see them having some honest and open communication in a mature way to kind of get past their history and just move forward now. Yes. And I, I liked seeing that as well. Yeah, me too. So at the end of the novel, uh, Sadie and Sam have actually reconnected following the death of his grandfather. Sadie's retired from the world of video game development, but teaches game development at MIT, where she's taken over for Dove's um, position. Sam continues to work in the video game development field, and it's, it's suggested that it's possible they work together again in the future. So do you think that they found closure in their past experiences? Do you think they can effectively work together again or that it's best if they maintain a friendship without exploring another professional relationship? Yeah, I think that at this point in the novel, they have found closure. I think they're kind of, they've gotten over their concerns from the past and now they're both, they're both in two healthy places in their lives. I don't think that they should work together again. Do I think they could yield good results? Yeah, probably. You know, they they probably could, but I don't think it would be helpful for either one of them mentally, emotionally. And I, I think that it's best if they just maybe maintain a friendship, you know, can maintain communication, check in with each other. But I don't think that they should pursue another professional relationship. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think they definitely could yield good results. They've proven to do so in the past. But I think going forward that they're two different people now. And I think it just goes to show that they were always in a toxic friendship. They're more yeah. toxic together. So I think uh, from that standpoint, I don't think it's healthy for them to regain friendship and perhaps just contain uh, their relationship strictly professional at this point. Uh, but they do leave it off. It does leave off in the book that they will be making more projects together. So you know, I well, wish them success. If- no, they leave it kind of up in the air. So like Sam is basically like, hey, I'll make another game with you. I'll do it for the rest of my life. I would love to. And Sadie's like, I don't think so. But, you know, here's my, you know, you have my number. You know where I am now. Like right. maybe one day. But I don't think, I think she knows at this stage in her life that she knows it's not in her best interest. It seems like she has done some work on her mental health. And probably because she now has a little girl that she has to take care of and she has to, you know, she has to be strong for her. She can't fall into, you know, a, a pit of depression again where she, yeah. you, you know, I, I'm sure that's a struggle for her. And I think she knows that getting back into this world of game development is not going to be beneficial to her, her mental health. And I, I don't think Sam is good for her mental health. Uh, you know, maybe at this point they've kind of grown as people, maybe they can, you know, start to rekindle a friendship a little bit, but I don't know working that closely together. I just don't think, I just don't think it's, I I think it's more harmful than beneficial at this point. Yeah. I think Sam just would do anything to keep her in his life. And I think Sadie just looks at it like, look, you know, I'm a mom now. 
things are different for me. Yeah. I don't, you know, I'm a teacher now, you know, I just, mm -hmm. I want to maybe uh, move past any toxicity. And I yeah. think, you know, that shows with her lunch and conversation with Dove that she's getting closure and she's moving past the toxicity. So that's the start of that. And then, you know, Sam coming back, you know, is just, of course, evident that he wants, he still wants her in his life. Uh, but I think, like you said, it's probably in her best interest if she doesn't engage in it. Yeah. So it is suggested throughout the novel that Sam had feelings for Sadie that went beyond that of a friend or colleague. However, he never acted on those feelings, nor did he ever express those feelings to Sadie. We, we've discussed this. So yeah. what do you think might have changed in the novel had he been open and honest with her? And why do you think he wasn't? I think he was afraid of rejection. I think she may have rejected him. And mm -hmm. I think it may have not only ruined their professional relationship, but their friendship as well. Although their friendship does get deteriorated and ruined from the lack of communication anyway. So it makes you wonder, you know, were these two people meant to be friends as long as they have been friends? Um, you know, I feel like he wasn't really open with her because he was just afraid uh, of being open that she wouldn't see him the same way. And I don't think she ever did maybe see him that way. So he might have been better off not telling her, but also at what cost, you know, because it it, mm -hmm. it ate at him, obviously. Yeah. I mean, he made a whole game to try to get her to be in a fake relationship with him, you know, like yeah. it's weird. Yeah. Uh, I feel for him. I do feel sorry for Sam in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, he lost his mother at a young age and he had Sadie who walked into his life right after. And I feel like he was holding on to her because maybe he was holding on to a female figure in his life. Mm. Um, but it just, you know, didn't work out that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think I agree with you that he was scared. I definitely think he knew that she didn't reciprocate those feelings. I don't think she did either. I don't think she ever viewed Sam as anything more than a friend. Uh, so, I mean, I, I can understand why that would be scary. Maybe he was worried that it would change the dynamic of their professional relationship as well as their friendship. However, I do think if he had been honest with her, that it would have alleviated some of the building resentment that they both had for one another. Mm. And maybe they could have worked through it instead of just, you know, anytime you bottled things in, it's going to explode at some point or it's going yes. to eat you alive. And you have to make a decision. Either you're going to, you know, cut this out of your life or you're going to address it and try to move past it. And so I do think that he should have communicated with her. But I also understand why he didn't. If he had been open with her in the novel, I do think we would have seen less resentment. I think we would have maybe felt a little less frustrated as readers. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, so I think it, it might have been a little less of a frustrating read. And I think that their relationship would have uh, transcended those, those conflicts a little bit more easily. I think that they would have gotten through their hardships, you know, more effectively than just choosing to, to keep everything in. Yeah. I, I kind of like that he didn't tell her because it just goes to show the realisticness of the fact that there are people who are friends and one party does feel a different way. Um, and there are people that exist like that and are afraid mm -hmm. to speak up or say anything for the fear of rejection. So including a character like that, and including a situation like that, I think, is another message that 
Gabrielle Zevin was just trying to uh, get yeah. across, and she does. Absolutely. I mean, this is super realistic. I think most people have been in a situation like this at some point in their lives. Yeah. I know we both have. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I think the whole point, too, is that um, Gabrielle Zevin is saying, you know, video games are a fantasy world, but the real world isn't. Yeah. And things things like these issues and these topics that she addresses in this novel show us that, you know, the real world is the real world and not everything's a video game. Yeah. So I thought that was a great message from her. Yeah. Which brings me to um, her writing style, which we like. <laughs> uh, this seems to be a correlation between the section titles and the relationship between Sam and Sadie during their specific times throughout their decades of friendship. So what do you think of this decision by Gabrielle Zevin? And overall, what are your thoughts on her writing style? So I love her writing style. I think that yeah. she understands people and she writes really complex characters. They're realistic. The, I, the, I've seen, you know, reviews that people feel like these people aren't realistic. I disagree 100%. I think that these are very gray characters. You know, you, sometimes you like them, sometimes you hate them. And sometimes you agree with them. Sometimes you disagree with them. And that's how life is. And yeah you know, that's what makes a three-dimensional character. And I really appreciated the way that she wrote certain scenes. I really appreciated the way that she touched on topics in a very subtle way, but in a way that was still very impactful. The NPC chapter will just forever be one of my all-time favorite, you know, excerpts from a novel that I think is just stellar. I, mm -hmm. I don't think, you know, I've never seen it done better at this point. I loved that. Um, in terms of the chapter titles, I didn't really think anything of this at the time. So I know you brought this to my attention. I think it's clever if she, you know, she was doing that intentionally to kind of break down the book into the chapters of Sam and Sadie's relationship and kind of giving it those titles. At the time, I just thought the titles are just like a, a name for what's happening at this point in the book but it does kind of mirror the relationship between Sam and Sadie. Again, you brought that to my attention. So I think yeah. that's just clever on her part. Yeah. As her, her as a writer, like I would definitely read another of her books. I think that she's an amazing author. Uh, the fact that the section titles correlate with their relationships, I just think is so amazing. Uh, so during one section being called Both Sides, which was a game that we uh, discussed earlier, but the section title being both sides is really about how they're on two different sides during this friendship, during this professional relationship, they don't agree on something. So every time that we're just, uh, every time that uh, Gabrielle Zevin is discussing them, she separates the discussion of each one individually rather than bringing them together. And I just thought that that was an, a really brilliant way to set that across mm -hmm. uh, for the NPC chapter. Brilliant. Again, like we said, and uh, it really puts you into the experience of someone who is dying. And it's just really uh, Im crazy impactful to read. Uh, it really puts you there. And it, I, I got very emotional during that part. Uh, and I was so drawn into her writing. Uh, and then there's other sections too. Like there was a section called uh, Pivots where there's a pivot in their friendship. <laughs> uh, there's a section called Marriage where there is marriages among the friends. Uh, there's a section too... Um, uh, well, I think unfair games is the name of their, uh, company, but I think that was a section too. Right. And unfair games is basically them two 
not communicating and playing unfair games with each other, uh, so to speak, figuratively to to not, you know, be good friends to one another or not to be on the same page. So I just thought it was very, very interesting. I, I loved that. Um, you know, I just thought from from a writing perspective that it was just really refreshing and brilliant to read. So I loved her writing style. Yeah. All right. So what are your what's your overall rating? Would you scoop or skip? And how many golden scoops would you give this book? I'm conflicted about the scoop or skip. If it were me again, I would skip. But I would also recommend someone read this just because of the writing style. And if they love video games, you know, if you love video games uh, or if, um, you know, you want to read a, a miscommunication trope about friends and see where this heads, even if you're not a video gamer yourself, it may be something you want to read. Um, it definitely has amazing character arcs and uh, character development in this in this book. Uh, it wasn't my favorite. And again, I don't know if I'm being unfair just because I came off of reading <laughs> Fourth Wing, but it wasn't my favorite. Uh, I was bored most of the time, um, you know, in between their friendship years. I feel like it was a little long. It could have been condensed more. Uh, I thought that it was creative in the fact that it was about video games and it was sort of uh, crafted like different levels of a video game, but friendship instead. And I just thought that was interesting. I loved all her topics and, and her messages, but uh, maybe I would recommend it for those type of things if that's something that you're into. But for me personally, I would skip the second time around. Uh, I'm going to give it a three and a half. And uh, I was going to give it a three, but the writing style is what saves it for me here. I just think that her writing is just beautiful at times. Her writing is very creative and I really appreciate that. Uh, but the characters annoyed me. I wasn't really particularly, you know, connected to any of the characters. I kind of hated them all to be honest. Uh, yeah, they just frustrated me and annoyed me, like speak to each other. I hate miscommunication tropes. Like it just annoys me to no ends. Like I feel like uh, it would have just alleviate a lot of issues, but I, again, then we wouldn't have had the book. So I see why they're there. Uh, but for me, I just, um, I found issues uh, on a personal level while reading it. It just, I don't know. I don't know. Some things, you know, like, like we said with the NPC chapter, like that saved it because we were bored uh but like why couldn't everything be like on that same level I don't know I don't know it wasn't for me yeah I gave this a four and a half I think that I I would scoop this book this isn't the type of book that you're gonna reread as I mentioned earlier it's not a fun book to read but it is very well done and it does touch on a lot of very good topics if you're expecting a really plot heavy book, or if you're looking for something that's going to be fast paced and a lot of action or something along those lines, this is not going to be the book for you. Definitely skip it. This is a character drama. This is a look at two people and what their lives are like and how they come together and separate throughout their, their friendship. It's really a commentary on a lot of social issues and it really talks, I think it really reflects a lot on the dynamics of a friendship. And I think that the characters are extremely realistic. I think that they, the, the scenarios that they were in were realistic. I, I wouldn't even consider this a game about video, uh, not a game, a book about video games. This is really a book about people and they happen to work in video games. Uh, so if you are hung up on the video game thing, it's really not about video games. It's about these people who make video games and what their lives are like and how they relate to each other. I think that 
the only reason I didn't give this book a five is because I did feel that it was a little too long somewhere in the middle. It felt very frustrating and it just could have been shorter. Things could have been taken out. As I mentioned earlier, it was just a lot of the same. So, you know, there's, they're doing this thing together. There's a conflict. And then we just see that happening over and over again. And you can get the point across without having to see it as many times as we did. But aside from that, I think that this was a fantastic book and I would recommend it and I'd give it four and a half golden scoops. Wow. All right. Well, there you have it. See, I, I'd rather go play a video game than read this book again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I would not reread this book. This this isn't the kind of book that you reread again. Really, the only books that you do reread over and over again are the ones with really good plots because they're. Yeah you know, they're in a different world, a fantasy, and you're like, oh, I want to get back into that and somewhere different. This isn't the kind of book that you're like, oh, I want to imagine what it's like to be in their life again. No, I don't want to be in their life. No, again. thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, I didn't particularly like the characters, uh, but I, I don't have to like every character as long as they're well-written. So, yes. you know, I, I'm happy to read about a character I don't like as long as I think that they are realistic because sometimes I like to see, you know, sometimes I like to read about different viewpoints or different, you know, people doing things differently than I would have. I just, as long as it's well done, I don't mind that. Yeah, I agree. And you know what? There are characters. Sometimes you just hate them, but you love to hate them. Yeah. say. I didn't feel that I didn't, way. About I didn't love to hate any of them. <laughs> yeah. I hated to hate them. Yeah. I, <laughs> I just didn't like that. I just, they're not the kind of people I would want to be friends with in real life, you know, mm -hmm. and they didn't really, you know, somebody like a Cersei, yeah, somebody you love to hate is because they're a great villain and neither one of these were villains. They were just flawed people that I just, I don't think I'd really want to spend a lot of time with in reality. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. Okay, everyone. So before we go, we have the sassy spatch. The Sassy Spatch Award, or the Sassy Spatula Award to give out. The word was ostentatious, and the person who used it most was... No one! Yet again! <laughs> Once again, neither of us used the word of the day. Yeah. We gotta be better. We gotta, we gotta be better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're the ones teaching it to you guys, and we're not even using the own training over here. So, um, yeah. <laughs> we failed and we, we will do better. We yes. promise, kind of, maybe, sort of. No, no promises, but we'll try. <laughs> hey, listeners, stick around after this episode for some bonus content. Next Tuesday, September 19th, we will be reading and reviewing Divine Rivals by Rebecca Ross. Join us then for our thoughts on the young adult romanticy and join us again this Thursday, September 14th for another party episode. Woohoo! Don't forget to mark your calendar for our next Book of the Month episode, which will air on Wednesday, September 27th. We'll be reading and discussing Karen Slaughter's critically acclaimed th thriller, Pretty Girls. If you haven't read the upcoming books but would like to, head on over to the link in our bio and get a copy for yourself so that you can participate in our discussion. As an Amazon associate and member of other affiliate programs, we earn from qualifying purchases. You don't pay anything extra, but if you make a purchase using our link, we get a commission. So thank you for supporting us. We also want to remind everyone to be on the lookout for our live events on TikTok. That's right. We're planning to do some live readings, book sprints, play some games, and other content. We hope you'll join us. 
for those. And in the future, we might even do a make a podcast with us live so you can join in with us on that. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, it would mean a lot to us if you would leave a positive review on Spotify, Apple, or the streaming service you use. We would really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. (laughs) If you're just tuning in, this is what you can expect from our podcast. We're going to be releasing new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. So be sure to check out our socials for updates and also some bonus content. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, and other platforms. Click on the link in our bio for access to all of our socials, our website, and other links. We encourage you to reach out to us with thoughts, ideas, questions, and feedback. You can email us at bookswithcooks at gmail.com. You can also find our full book reviews on Goodreads. These links will also be available at the link in bio. If no one told you today, you're important and valued. You belong here. You're doing great. And we believe in you. Now let's turn the page and put a fork in it because we're done with this one. you why we chose this book what the hell was that (laughs) (laughs) what was that so first of all let me tell you why we chose this book um (laughs) all right before we get started we want to start i can't even do it (laughs) before we get started we want to tell everyone how jess is sad oh you don't have mine in there it's right here. This is no. the this is for the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow episode. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> Without further ado. Without further ado, today's word of the day is discombobulate. Spell discombobulate. <laughs> discombobulate. Spelled D-I-S-C-O-M-B-O-B-U-L-A-T-E. Pronounced this come Bob. You late? It's verb. <laughs> oh, it's All right. Right. Hold on. We need to redo this. 